Turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Now, you, now I don't know if you've um, braved it to read through it. Of course, it's a lot of fun to read through this. Now, you know, we do believe that all, by, all the entire Bible, as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, is breathed by God. It's inspired by Him. And God did not have to do this. God did not have to put a bunch of names down in a chapter that's predominantly names, as we see by the end of this entire text. He tells us that. However, it is important to note that if God didn't list names like this, we would be more apt to assume that somehow in this we work for a big institution and that God's sort of taking things by group, even though he tells us as a good uh, shepherd, as the good shepherd, he calls his sheep by name. And we know that conceptually, idealistically, but it's another thing to be able to see a bunch of names like this written down. Here what we have is a thousand years before Jesus. We are looking at a time when David now is about to pass off the scene and ultimately the mantle will be handed to his son Solomon. And let me say, as I would any week, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures and let the Bible be the thing for which you test all things to be true or false, me included, and anything and everything else. Uh, Nothing has been more challenged and has proven unscathed like the Word of God. Now, Pray with me, would you please, and we'll jump into our text. Lord God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you so much for the privilege and the honor today to be able to stand before my brothers and sisters, to stand before your people, and to open up your scriptures and expect you to minister to us. And I am expectant. I am hopeful, and not just in a hope-so-hope, but rather in a confidence that comes with knowing that your Holy Spirit is at large and at work to confirm in our hearts the truths you've laid out on text before us here in this chapter. So, Lord, you know exactly where we're at. You know, Lord, the challenges, the weaknesses, the struggles, and those victories that we claim even tonight. And you know, Lord, how to speak fluent us, bespoke to our ears and hearts and minds and understanding. Tonight, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may your word burst open and come alive and flourish before us, that tonight, God, you would color in the black and white, and that we today would find ourselves forever changed, more than just encountering information, but rather, instead of being informed, rather, Lord, may we be transformed as we encounter you. May we encounter you tonight in your word. Jesus, you had said to the religious leaders in John 5 that they searched the scriptures thinking by them they possess eternal life. And yet they are they that testify of you. We expect to find you in this somewhere. Also, you've told us that whatever was written was written for our instruction and our learning and warning. That we through such things as this understanding, but also through the perseverance we see before us, Lord, would be all the more strengthened to endure the challenges before us, but also to be warned to not partake of the same things that brought down others. And in this chapter, as we in essence have the hall of fame in some ways of those men who stood with David, challenge us to become the men that would also make it into the annals in a moment like this, uh, of those that would be honorable mentions and notable for the things in which they did and the personalities and characteristics that, uh, that, they, that are set before us here. So Lord, please redeem every second And teach us, as we've come to sit at your feet and choose the better service as Mary did. So Lord, redeem each moment as we give ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the previous chapter, it has been now focusing on the end of David's life. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, David, in essence, revised Psalm 18. And that's sort of what we went through last week. Where we have Psalm 18 at a, at a younger time, when more than likely David had been, it escaped the clutches of Saul, the predecessor, who uh, had no intention of stepping off the throne. And that incumbent was rather, well, if you will, it was rather tenacious in that. And, and David would spend, in essence, half of his life running for his life like a Jason Bourne, just trying not to die. And from that, ultimately, when Saul would pass away, David would write Psalm 18. And he would have a time after waking up and realizing nobody's pointing their guns at him anymore. No one's trying to kill him. And then David would revisit a similar situation, but this time not at the hands of Saul, but rather at the hands of a son. As his own son Absalom then seeks to take the throne and seeks to kill his father in the process. And in doing so, David will again be running for his life. 
And at the end of Absalom's life, David will be in a similar situation, grieving, no doubt, as not only was this enemy of his seeking to kill him, but of course it was his son and David still loved him, strange as it is. And somewhere in that, then, we have this beautiful privilege of comparing Psalm 18, a younger David, if you will, to a Psalm 18, or in this case, a Second Samuel 22, later on. And what we find is David transitions from God you give to God you are. That's what we saw last week, is David would look and say, God, you give strength, and you will give your king, and you will set up your king. And now David, towards the end of his life now, would look and say, God, you've kept your king, and God, you've been my strength. And you've been my refuge and my rock. And I love how David would learn that. Even as we do as Christians, we get to that place where we look and we realize it isn't about bellying up to God's bar for the next hit of whatever it is God wants to give us, but to find all in all in Jesus. Now he's seen God make him king. Now he's seen God keep him king. But now David prepares to pack it in. He's beginning to take inventory. And some of it is really, really great. This chapter will be a highlight of David's inventory. The mighty men who made the roll call. But some of it isn't great. Like the next chapter, where what we'll find is, is that not everything is really proper to inventory the way that David did. But even that God will make good of. Even in some of the greatest of David's, well, in all of David's mistakes, God will do something great with it. Because he's definitely not surprised by them. And he's certainly not frustrated by them. So I'd like you to look at this. Obviously, there's sort of these personal inventories that will work its way through verse 7. And then in verse 8, really in essence, kind of until about verse 23, we kind of have a very specific individuals mentioned. And then really, for the most part, verses 24 through 39 are just a really fun free fall through a bunch of Hebrew words. Uh, and that, that can be fun too. Now, we are going to treat it all as if it's scripture because it is, and therefore it all has importance. Even if we don't necessarily know why all of it has some form of importance to it, we are still going to treat it that way because God told us to. Now, what's interesting is this, if you actually do run into somebody, you know, you're, you're in heaven, the Lord has saved you, you're standing before his throne room, and a guy butts up to you, and he says, by the way, my name is Yosheva Baasheva. And you go, oh, you're one of David's mighty men. And he asks you, how in the world did you know that? Tell him you came to the study. Anyways, with that in mind, it says in 2 Samuel 23, and here's our first part. Now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, or Yeshi, really. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. David starts by inventorying himself. However, he will only view himself here in light of God's purpose. Note that. Each of these inventories will come in essence with something to balance it. And here, David doesn't just look and say the mighty king, the giant slayer, the greatest king that has lived, the richest man, the wisest man. And by the way, David also doesn't say here, the husband killer, the wife stealer, the conniver, though he's been all of those things too. David looks here and he sees in his own life the things that God has done in God's purpose. It was God who raised him up. It was God who anointed him. And you know what David is, did as a result? He sang and he praised God. Now what if you looked at yourself only in light of God's eyes. How that would change? First of all, consider the fact that you wouldn't be afraid to be honest with your shortcomings. You wouldn't be afraid about being weak because God's strong enough for both of them. You wouldn't be afraid of being honest about how filthy you are without Him. But you wouldn't spend all your time bagging on the horrible person you are without Him because that itself is just self-deprecating and it becomes self-consuming. Instead, Paul would say, for instance, and I know this, that in me, nothing good dwells. But then he compares that to what happens by being so loved by a God who isn't intimidated by that. We live in a culture where the focus is on you and because the focus is on the individual, you have to have a thing called self-esteem. And what that means is, how do you feel about yourself? The problem with self-esteem 
as an island is that it has nothing for which you should... There's no rules of engagement or any standards for which you would feel good about yourself. So, what if you stab someone to death? I've been in Canada, for instance, at a juvenile detention center, and because they were very big on self-esteem, they wanted to applaud a boy who stabbed a fellow classmate to death with a pencil, and so they had to try to figure out a way to make that look good, so they were actually applauding his thoroughness and follow-through. And for that matter, ingenuity for what it's worth. Because when you just want someone to feel good for themselves with nothing else, no standards reticent to it, well, then what do you get? You get people who will do whatever they can to feel good. And let's face it, sometimes you feel bad for purpose. When something hurts on you, it's often a warning that something's not right that needs to get right. But if all I want is to feel good about myself, then actually, if I'm actually guilty, I don't want to feel guilty because it doesn't make me feel good about myself. But David here looks at the, that who he is in light of and in the balance of God's purpose. Second, he reviews his ministry in verses 2 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds like tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. David will review his ministry, but only in light of God's power. He views himself only in light of God's purpose, but views his ministry only in light of God's power. Because if you don't view it in regards to what God has done, well, again, you are going to go and fall on one side of the fence or the other. On one side, great things have happened and you blame yourself, for which then you demand, and that's never good in the sight of God. For one of the things God hates is a haughty look. And pride comes before a fall. And so on one side, we see these great things that have happened. And all of a sudden, it goes from what Jesus has done. And you know how this is. You start sharing your testimony on something that God has done. And it's like, here was a great moment. And it started with, I was helpless and God stepped in. And these great things happened. And then as you continue to tell the story to others, and you get the story evolves. And now it wasn't that you were a damsel in distress, but you were mostly there. And God came and helped you. And then ultimately, the story winds up where, and again, I'm not saying I do this i'm sure that you know, anyways but you know where you get to this place where it's sort of like yeah, i was you know i was mostly there and god just sort of pitched in the last little bit to kind of top it off now it's amazing how those things evolve but david now as he gets older and he's now you know, david will die at 70 so let's assume he's 69 and he's looking back now on his life and he realizes look at god the spirit of the lord spoke by me his word was what was on my tongue it was the God of Israel who said, and it was the rock of Israel who spoke to me, telling me, this is how you do it. And I love the fact that when David looks back at a moment like this, let's face it, if we're the kind that has a very strong sense of justice, we start to look at this and we go like, hey, where is David's grieving over his sin? Where is David looking back and going, well, what about Bathsheba? And what about you know, Uriah and how, how he was killed? And the, the horrible things you've done, David, will understand as David looks, when you start to look through the eyes of God, well, love keeps no record of wrongs. And once that sin has been forgiving, dwelling on it is actually an injustice and an infringement to the grace of God. Let's face it, the enemy loves to remind you of your past because you can't change it. And you'll always feel like a failure if you've built a monument and continue to revisit some moment of failure in your life that God has forgiven and washed you clean of. Well, he... he views himself in light of God's purpose, his ministry in light of God's power. And then verses 5 through 7, he interviews or inventories his family. Although my house is not so with God. And I've got to be honest, of all of the things that David could have said, those self-defacing moments where he could spend his time in essence glouting his defamation and instead he could have, you know, I'm a horrible, miserable, rotten person and God, and, you know, it's, it's like where the focus still really is on him. And no matter how much David could have said about what he did wrong, to be honest, none of that would cause me greater grief than reading that line to me. Because David looks and even though he views, as you see here, his ministry in light of God's power and himself and in light of God's purpose, he views his family and he sees there's a failure there. And although my house is not so with God yet, 
He has made with me an everlasting covenant. And might I say, he inventories his family, but only in light of God's promises. God never promised that your children would never make a mistake. But he did promise that if we raise them in the ways of the Lord, that when they're old, they won't depart from them. Now, I wonder what happens in between raising them and when they're old. He doesn't say, raise a child in the ways of the Lord, and as they grow, they'll never depart. He says, when they're old, they will not depart. And David looks, and if he just focuses, if David focused on his failures, or David focused on his his victories, and he didn't put God in the mix, he would be a mess, and to be honest, he would be disabled. And we are too. On one side, we feel like we have to focus on those things because somehow we think that that makes us humble before God, but it doesn't. And on the other side, we feel like we need to inventory God's great things because it sort of gives us fodder for for praise. But if we're going to be honest, focusing on Him, we see what He's done and it makes us praise. We can't help it. So David looks and goes, although my house is not so with God, Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and it is all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and a shaft of spear. They'll be utterly burned with fire in their place. And David now moves from inventorying his own personal life and his own ministry and his own family to inventorying his friends. And I love the fact that he actually does so in the light of God's character as he shows us moments that are in essence idiomatic. Moments, if you will, kind of like if there was an icon, you know this, if you were going to pick, you're going to be on the new app, whatever that app is, some kind of social app, you know that sooner or later you'll have weird things like followers. Now, you have to understand how weird that sounds to an old guy like me when my 11-year-old at one point, who is now 13, looks and goes, I've got over 200 followers. My mind goes to, when did you start a cult? You know, that's where my mind goes. And she's like, well, you don't understand. I have this. Okay, but if, if, you were, if there was one of those things, you know, one of those social media things, and it sort of pops up and it's the new hot thing, and you've got to put your name in it, and you've got to sign up, and then you give yourself an icon, You know, something that they look at, you know, it's a panda with red eyes, or it's a samurai, or it's the fruit ninja, or it's the whatever, it's the crazy graffiti Frenchman, or it's, you know, you know, it's the, whatever the thing is, what would be your icon? Because be careful what you choose. Because what God is doing here is he's laying before us great men in David's army, and he's listing them by name, and he tells us something about them that are in essence in light of God's own character and the fruit of God's own spirit. And in this, I wonder what would be the icon we would pick for them. So it says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Now, the fact that there has the article, or if you will, the the modifier mighty means that David had a lot of other people who weren't mighty. But these were the mighty. These were the ones that you should know by name because if you were in a bind and you needed someone that was mighty to jump into it, these would be the guys you'd want to call. And as I look at this, please understand, seeking to apply it to my life and prayerfully you to yours as well, I look at this and I can't help but think, God, either give me these kind of friends or are the friends I have this way and make me this kind of man too because I want to be a mighty man in God's army. So here it is. First of all, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had, verse 8. So let's just say him for fun. The first name, Yeshev, try that, Yeshev. Bashevet. Bashevet. So, Yeshev Bashevet. Now his name, for what it's worth, means literally, he dwells in rest. What a great name. Now, 
I'm not, you know, naturally, the moment I think of this, I think of someone like Daniel, only because Daniel's one of those guys that if you give him about 15 minutes on a comfortable chair, oh, the boy dwells in rest. But there's a very difference between a guy that just kind of knows his body, says, hey, let's make the best of this time. It's nap time. And, and what we read with, because this guy clearly isn't napping. And again, in no way comparing Daniel to that point. Yeshiva Shibit, by the way, the Tachmanite. Tachmanite, by the way, literally means you'll make me wise. It comes from, a, and, and that's the idea, the chief among the captains. This was the big boy. Of all the guys over everything, this was the big boy. And they even gave him the nickname Dino the Esnite, which means, by the way, his ornament of strong or the strong. And this is why, because he killed 800 men at one time. 800 men! And by the way, I remind you, this was before gunpowder. So what that means is it wasn't like he was he had an automatic weapon and he just went, ba da 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 this was a guy where his weapon had you had to get close enough in contact with it, or at best he could chuck a spear or shoot arrows kind of like Hawkeye or whatever. But in the end of it all, this was a guy that, I, I mean, let's face it, if the guy is that good, I, I don't know, forgive me for thinking this way, but if I was in the enemy army and I was, let's just say, number 799, and, and then laying in front of me is a mountain of dead people because of one guy, there's a part of me that thinks it's time to go home. And there's a, I, I can't help but think, okay, he's killed everyone else. What makes me think that I'm going to actually be the guy to take this one down? And as I look at this, I realize that this is a man of great faith. Because the fact that the, the way it's written in the Hebrew is the idea that it wasn't like they queued up. It wasn't like, okay, here are the rules of engagement. One at a time, please. One at a time. All right. 416, and they come over. All right, let's fight. Okay, 417. This is 800 guys who come at him at one time, and this guy doesn't run but fights. And can I say, a man of great faith will be a man of great fight. Now, there are other people, by the way, he's not the only man of great fight. There are people who have no brains who are people of great fight, and they just want to fight over nothing. But here is a man who sees impossible odds and still says, let's go for it. And I ask, could that be said of you? Could that be said of me? Because the man who leads the army behind David is a man of fantastic faith and great fight as a result of it. And that's the first of his three. He has three guys that he would say, these are the close boys. And then here's the next batch. And then there's the crew. So, maybe that's you. And I challenge you to look at this and go, well, which one of these guys would you, would you align yourself most to? Yeshev uh, Bachivit? Or the second one, verse 9. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dudu. And that's how you would say that, Dudu. Dudu, by the way, means my beloved. So that's a really cool name, or his beloved. He's the brother of Chochet. By the way, let me just say this. I, 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 could, I could jones all day on Yeshev Bachivit. But... It's important to note that if he is a man of such great faith, does it make sense that his name would mean he dwells in great rest or he constantly he's the one who dwells in rest? Because one of the things you find with a person of great faith is they just tend not to freak out. They tend to be a person that can dwell in rest even with the 800 people approaching. And that's a crazy thought, but he also knows when to fight. Eliezer, as you may be aware of, means God helps or God our hope. And after Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, brother of rest is what that means. One of three mighty men whom David, uh, with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. Now, don't miss this, because what we find, first of all, is that this Eliezer is going to have to stand alone. Did you notice that? If everybody else is retreating, but Eliezer is not, he's in a different situation from Yeshebashevet, where it looks like he was leading the charge forward. Now, this is a guy who refuses to retreat. But it tells us this. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. Oh, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And then it says, and the people returned after him only to plunder what that tells us is that we have, with our first guy, he was a man of great faith. But in our second person, we have a man of great follow-through. He is a man who is going to take this thing to the end. And so here he is in a situation 
where he's got his sword in his hand. Everyone else seems to have their sword in their hand. The Philistines start coming at him and everyone flees. And this guy says, I am going to take this thing to its end. Even though it seems like everybody else is fleeing, everyone else is deserting. Truth be told, I trust God and he's giving us victory and we are going to win this. And what it tells us is they did win, but they won because of one guy. In both of these cases, one guy was the difference in a victory. One guy. And neither of them being David here. In our first case, the guy that brought that was a guy that was going to lead you forward. I don't care if there were 800 guys, we're still going to make it through this. And the second time, the Philistines are coming and everyone else flees and he goes, I am still not moving. I am not going to follow the crowd of what is called God's people who are running away from this battle. I'm going to stand my ground. And it makes sense that he would be a, a man called God our help. Now, it's interesting, and perhaps you're familiar with the fact that God uses the sword itself as an icon. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, as we put on the full armor of God, that the sword of the Spirit is what? Can anyone tell me? It's the Word of God. It says the same thing, in essence, in Hebrews 4, 12, where it says that the Word of God is sharper than a double-edged spirit, able to divide joints and marrow and soul and spirit, and is in a discerner of the intent and thoughts of the heart of man. And I love that. Because I get the idea here that this was a guy who was going to hold on to his sword and he wasn't letting go until we were done. Hey, there are a lot of people out there that, let's face it, we're all too young. We're going to say that for the benefit of knowing when our nation here switched from believing that God created everything to where we were the product of a bunch of fortuitous chance changes mutations. And it had such strong media backing. It had such strong, I mean, ultimately, such strong, of course, the entire scientific community picked it up as its banner and basically told you that if you believed anything but that, you were a fool, an idiot, adult, daft. To this day, there are certain communities where even saying you believe that God is a possibility created things makes you ill-fit and unwelcome within those annals. And the, the reason I say that is, is there was a time when we would expect the unsaved world, those who didn't make a public a declaration of allegiance to the living God, to run away from that. I would expect that. What grieves me is that the church did so quickly. Today we are debating over issues the Bible has never put any gray, gray matter in. And it has been that way for so long now that it's almost hard to believe that there was a time when we actually believed that Jesus literally came, literally died, literally resurrected, and literally ascended into heaven. Because those were, by the way, indefatigable truths at one point. But as the culture around us tended to stand and say, well, can you really believe that? Well, then we tended to back down and all of a sudden there were less people in the field holding their swords. And then people said, well, do you really believe this book to be an errand? Well, what about killing people? And what about this? And what about that? And we felt like we had to give an answer for everything instead of saying, I'm not running the universe, so I don't have to explain everything. I don't claim to understand, but I don't have to. And as a result of that, more people left the field and dropped their swords. And then the culture became greater in that and said, there are certain words that we have a real offense with. Words like preach, Bible, Jesus. We would like you to forfeit those terms if we're going to be in any way cordial with each other. And again, many dropped their swords and left the field. Then it became the clergy who had to openly do so. Do you realize that there's only considered, at least speaking to good Anglican leaders, that there's one considered one conservative seminary among the Anglican uh, Leadership here in England. And by that they mean that they believe the Bible inerrant. It's the one, it, it makes it unique from all of the others, as I'm told. And there are many bishops, those in, in, uh, employed within the bishopry, who will not hire somebody who has graduated from that particular seminary. By the way, it happens to be uh, up in, uh, near the, in the Barnets, by the way, just so you know. Okay. Do you drop your sword? What's interesting is 
is they told us we couldn't pronounce, we shouldn't say the name Jesus. But isn't it amazing that the people who don't seem to have a relationship with him don't have a problem dropping his name when they stub their toe or lose their space on the bus? Isn't it weird to think that they would say, you can't say it, but we can? How weird is that? So then, of course, the standards of right and wrong, of course, come next, right? Well, this is what I feel, and if this is what I feel, it's not just what I identify with, it's who I am. And for you to say that you disagree with that is actually calling me names. It's hating me now. And as a result of that, what do you have? More people drop their swords and leave. And yet, there is one guy, my God, the help. The name, by the way, that will be used of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament in John 14 through 16. And this guy is not leaving. He's like, I'm not dropping my sword, and I am not leaving. This is the truth. And it says, let all men be a liar, but God be true. Is that you? Because that kind of follow through puts you in the hall of fame here. Because everybody else left but him. But you know what's interesting? When the guy did get a victory, everyone showed back up. Did you notice that? They showed back up to clean up after him to take all of the spoils. In other words, when this guy stood his ground and in the end of it all, everyone fell dead. They all went, wow, there's an awful lot of stuff here to go and pick. And they started going and reaching into pockets and pulling out changes in iPhones. That's what they were doing. And I remind you that victory was because of one person. Now, is that you? Do you relate more with your Shabbat Shabbat? Do you relate more with Eleazar? Verse 11 tells us our third. After him was Shema. Shema, by the way, Now, Shema and Shema are two different things. To listen intently, to be astonished. The son of Agi, the Hararite. I will increase. It said this, the the Philistines had gathered together into a troop. And there was a piece of ground full of lentils. You're probably aware that's little beans. Then the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Did you notice, by the way, how in all of these cases God starts to speak about these great victories he wrought because he was just looking for one man? A bean field. What's so big about a bean field? It seems fairly insignificant, and it would appear fairly insignificant. Except it's God's bean field. Because it's God's bean field, it was to be defended. Is where we have with Yeshua Shibbat, a man of great faith. With Eliezer, a man of great follow-through. With Shema, we have a man of great faithfulness. A man that won't even bail on the little things. Now, you know how that is, how frustrating that could be. When you're kind of working and, you know, the two of you are kind of walking hand in hand in something and they're doing some part and you're doing some part and some little thing gets missed. And then the next thing you know, you spend your time, you have to, you have to kind of figure out what in the world is missed so that you can kind of clean up another thing to go back to the thing you were doing. And you realize David had men he could really rely on. And this was a man of great faithfulness who was going to stand in his bean field and say, you know what, I am not giving up this bean field. This bean field belongs to God because this bean field belongs to God. Regardless of how seemingly insignificant it would be economically, how seemingly insignificant it would be in light of a city, how seemingly insignificant it would be in the sight of some going by and not going, well, it's not a very impressive thing. You're probably aware, bean, uh, you know, bean plants aren't beautiful plants. I mean, some would look at things like vineyards and they could see them as a work of art. And there is an art to some of that. There are you know, other things that when they grow, they look really cool. Now, now look, at if you plant a vegetable garden, let's face it, some of it, you know, what makes it look so cool is that you kind of know you're going to eat from it. That is an exciting part about that. But, it, you know, you walk by certain areas and there are these beautiful, and you love it in England, there are wildflowers everywhere, and the place is decorated in colors you could never find in a Crayola box. And then you look over in there and you're like, it's like, wow, this and this and that. And then there's like these little rows of like, that's some cabbage. And that's, a, you know, and it's just not as impressive to look at. And the reason I say that is you walk past a bean field. It isn't like you look and go, wow, that smells really good. Or lentils, it isn't like it smells great or it's beautiful to look at. Or look at how majestic or how glorious 
or even for how economically possible this whole thing is. Lentils were, in essence, on one of the lower ends of the this, of this scale. And yet, in all of that, this guy saw that this belonged to God, and because it belonged to God, he was not giving it up. And I love people like this. Not that they want to fight over everything. That's not the point. The point is, is that they're not going to give the enemy room that's not his. Is that you? Are you the Shema? Because our Shama, because these are the three men that God says, you need to remember these guys. Because these are heroes. This is what a hero looks like in the sight of God. Not just somebody who's quick to fight. Not just somebody who, you know, who's, who's all about, you know, polishing their weapons and telling great stories about the battle. They were men of great faith and fight. They were men of great faithfulness. They were men of great follow-through. And I realize as I get older that a man is consistent in his follow-through is a greater hero than a person who can do something for a moment. And he tells us a story about them. Verse 13, it says, Then three of the thirty men went down at the time of harvest and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped at the valley of Raphaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. Now, don't miss that. Why would God even make special mention that the garrison of the Philistines... You, know, you recognize garrison means that they've built a fortress now there. But where did they build this fortress? The Philistines, the enemy? Where did they build it? In Bethlehem. Let me ask you, why would Bethlehem be an important place to David? It's where he was born. Why did Mary and Joseph have to go to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born? Because they were of the house of David. Because they were of the house of David, during a time of taxation, they had to go back to the place of their ancestry. That was where David was born. Think about that place. And maybe this wasn't your childhood, but maybe it was. Where you look back and it was a simpler time. There wasn't responsibility and you felt free and carefree and without a worry in the world. For some of us, that wasn't necessarily our childhood, but for some, I, I, I pray, of course, that would be the case for my, children, my own children. But can you see David when he was just following sheep and he didn't have the responsibilities? He wasn't king and he wasn't fighting giants. Although I will say that he did take on a lion and a bear. And David said with longing in verse 15, Oh, that someone would give me a drink from the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. David is longing for those simpler days. And that water that must have tasted so much better. But I don't think it had anything to do with the, the location of the well. I think it everything had to do with the context of when he was drinking it. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. Now, obviously, this is a different culture than ours. Imagine you risked your life, and in risking your life, just to give a guy a drink of water, and somehow in that, then David, then the guy just takes it and throws it in the bin. You kind of go, uh, what? But understand what David did is he didn't just pour it out. It says he poured it out to the Lord. And don't miss that. These men risked their life to do something as an act of friendship to David. And David saw that act of friendship, be it as inconvenient and as costly and as dangerous as something like this could be. Yet in all of that, he saw it as an act of friendship. And can I say one thing these guys had in common is they were not just men of great faith and faithfulness and follow through men of great fight. They were men of great friendship. And great friendship is shown in sacrifice. Jesus taught us that when he told us that's what love really looks like. David said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who were in jeopardy of their lives, who went in jeopardy of their lives, therefore he wouldn't drink it? These things were done by the three mighty men. And God, and you know, this is a moment God doesn't have to record, but he does. This is one of those moments I imagine when David afterwards would find hard times, he would remember those friends that he had that he could really rest on and go, remember those guys. They're still in his army. But he could look back and go, man, I remember when they would do anything. And look at him now. I trust them. I trust them because these guys would do stuff that just doesn't even make sense other than through friendship and love. I look at my friends and I think this. 
I see some of the sacrifices they have to go through. I know, granted, they're not breaking through enemy grounds or anything like that that I'm aware of, although some of the neighborhoods they may have to pass through might be uncomfortable and maybe even a bit dangerous. But I do see them not spending their time first and foremost scorekeeping or weighing out how inconvenient or costly something would be versus what would really bless. And we get to that place, don't we, as we walk with the Lord. But what we really want to do is, well, what really blesses? Suddenly he starts to develop the rest. And this will go much quicker. Now it says, Abishai, the brother of Yoav, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name, uh, won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of the three? However, therefore he became captain. However, he didn't attain to the first three. Now, he would have sounded pretty amazing had it not been that the other guy killed 800. But just the same, he was another guy of great faith. Benaiah, the son of Yehoiada, the son of a valiant man uh, from Kabziel, who had done many deeds, who killed two lion-like heroes in Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst. I mean, if they looked like lion, those other guys, I'm not too sure which, if he knew the difference. In the midst of a pit on a snowy day, he also killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. Can you imagine how many people in Scripture does God say, wow, that guy was spectacular? But I am imagining that you don't want to fight a spectacular man by nature. An Egyptian who had a spear in his hand, so he went down with him with a staff. Now, a staff, you, wear, you know what a staff is, right? That's a spear with no thing to really thrust the guy through with. It's like a learner spear. Wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Interesting. Our second choice of men, like in the first three, was a man of great follow-through. took one sword and that was it. This guy came with one staff. Still one. These things benign the son of Yehoiada and won a name among the mighty three, three mighty men. He was more honored than the 30 and he didn't attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. And we have these men to conclude. Asahel, which means God made. The brother of Yehoiada was one of the 30. And Hanan, God has made gracious, the son of Dudu of Bethlehem, Shama, astonishment, the Herodite, Elika, my God rejects. Who actually names their kid that? The Herodite. Chalez, he has saved the Palatite, or Palatite. Ira, watchful of his city, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite. Abiyadzar, my father is help, the Anathalite. So the Anathotite. Anathothite. Sorry, that's not so easy for me to say either. Mebunai, building of God, the Hishitites. Zalmon, by the way, Zalmon means shady. You know, there he is right in scripture. I'd like you to meet my son. Shady. The Ahohite. Maharai, impetuous. Netophathite. Chaleb, which means milk. Son of Ba'ana. Itai, which means with me, the son of Rubai, from Gibeah, the children of Benjamin. Benaiah, God has built, the Parathonite. Hidai, for God's rejoicing, from the brooks of Gaash. It's actually one of my favorite places because of its name. I actually want to get a shirt that just says Gaash. Abi Albon, God is my father. The Arbathite, Azmavit, and by the way, if you get if you're the kind that's comfortable, that circle that name because if I had a men's group, if we were to start a men's group, this is the name I would want to give it, Azmavit, because Azmavit means strong unto death. Isn't that the coolest name? When you see all these people that were strong for a little bit, but then sort of in essence petered out as they got older, lost their faith and their challenge or their follow through. And you look at this and I realize, man, that's what I want to be. I want to be Asmavith. I want to be the guy that they say, you know, that, that guy just, he just loved God and never backed down on that. Asmavith. Sorry, I'm jonesing on that. The Barhumat. Elihahpa. God hides. The Sha'albanat. Of the sons of Yashin. Yonatan, which means God's grace. Shama, again, astonishment. That's the third guy with that name here in this. The Haranite. Ahaim. Names means mother's brother. Now, what woman in her right mind names her child uncle? Well, there you go. 
I, I, there's a part of me that would think it would breed suspicion. The son of Shedar, the Hararite. Alaflet, which means God is my deliverer or God is deliverance. The son of Ahaspi, Ahaspai. The son of the Maakasite. Eliam. Eliam, by the way, means God, my kinsman. The son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite. Hezerai, which means enclosed, the Carmelite. Pa'arai, gaping. There's another fun one for a kid. I imagine maybe he was crying with a big mouth. The Arbite. Igal, which means he redeems, the son of Natan, of Zuba. Bani, which means built, the Gedite. Zelak, which means fisher, like crack, the Ammonite. Wait a minute. The Ammonite, did you notice that? You're aware that the Ammonites were enemies of the, of the army of David, weren't you? You realize that there was one person who clearly, interestingly enough, noticed his name as a crack? In other words, I think this was a guy that made a clean break. Uh, Naharai, by the way, Naharai is one of those names that no one's going to know. So if you call someone Naharai, they won't know that you're calling them Snorder. Uh, the Birathite, Deborah will be like, my husband's such a Naharai. Armabir of Yoav, the son of Zoruia. Ira, watchful of his city, the Ithrite. And then another fun one to name your child, Gareb. Gareb means scabby. That for what's worth. The Ithrite. And Uriah, God is my flame, the Hittite. That man should sound familiar because no doubt that was the man who had a wife that David impregnated and wound up dying as a result of it and a murder plot to actually make David not look so bad. 37 in all. Now look at Here's where we go to prayer. If you read this, I don't know where you fit in. And obviously this culture is very different from the initial culture I was raised in where we were challenged to actually do to succeed in such ways that you would be confident you've given your absolute all. And I'm aware of the fact that there are certain places where culturally we're not told to stand out. On one side you stand out because you look too needy, and on the other side you stand out because you look like you're showboating. You can't be really, really good without showboating, and you can't just be super humble without looking needy. And somehow in that just sort of stay in the, there's like guardians of the status quo, and as long as you're part of the status quo, you're cool. Well, I'm going to be honest, God didn't make me that way. I don't look at that and I don't think, well, maybe we should just kind of win. Whatever it is, I want to do it with all that I have. And I read this and I'm like, hey, it would be really cool to be part of that bottom list somewhere in between scabby and snorter. You know, it'd be kind of fun to maybe be in that. But then I look and I'm like, no, to be honest, I would rather go up the ladder on that. I'd rather be beyond that. I would rather be somebody that would be known by name as something that did something, not just, and here's the rest of the guys. Hey, they're still cool and they're still David's mighty men. So they still get to wear the jersey. They still get the amulet or whatever. And they all get the matching tattoo or whatever. But in the end of it all, there's that crew. And then there's these guys. These guys were guys that rose up above that because they were going to do They had to take the initiative of not just being part of the crew, but they had to go beyond the status quo and say, I'm going to go for it. And whether that going for it is wrestling an Egyptian that's, a, according to this, a spectacular man, or whether that is, you know, in a case where you would just you were really going to give it everything you had, and you were going to you were going to you were going to sort of stand against insurmountable odds like 300 men. And at that point, maybe there's a party would think, man, if I got there, that would be cool. That would be really cool because there would be the place where it's not like there's the crowd and then there's you, but then there's another group after that. There's another group that says, you know, yeah, that was great. They were known for these great moments. But then let me tell you about another guy that would not back down off a bean field. Let me tell you about another guy. I mean, these were guys that, first of all, there was a guy and he was going to hold on to his sword and that thing was not going to get dropped until there was nothing left to swing at. And I realized there's a part of me just the way that God created me because my God didn't create a mundane, mediocre universe, but a magnificent universe. And I look at that and I realize that same God dwells in me, the one who flung the stars into space and has got a name for every one of them. The one who has created all these amazing nebulae and, and galaxies that we're still discovering and colors that just blow our minds, our eyes seem to melt. And then he puts weird fish in the bottom of the sea we still haven't uh, discovered yet. There's like 70% of the deep ocean we have never been to yet. We don't even know what's there. We just guess. And we tell everyone the universe is expanding. Well, if the universe is emptiness, how does emptiness expand? I kind of get the idea we kind of got to some place and we're like, oh, it's actually bigger than I thought. And we realize that we're still discovering and we're still discovering. And the same God who did all of that lives inside of me. And you, if you've said yes to Jesus Christ. And there's no part of me that thinks, wow, I should probably try to be normal and, and, and just 
mediocre and mundane. Because people will really know how cool God is from that. I'm like, God, what would it look like to stand in front of 800 people and go, you are so going down? What kind of faith would that look like? What kind of faith would it look like to stand there and follow through to look and go, you know what? Yeah, I, I could leave a few of you standing, but there's no way, man. This sword is not leaving my hand. I am not dropping this and leaving. What would it be looked like to say, well, you know, that seems insignificant, but because it's my watch and it's the place you put me, God, I am not futzing through this thing. I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to take this bean field seriously. Whatever that bean field is, I'm going to do it with the best I've got, and I am not going to lose this place. Because there's a part of me that looks at this and goes, man, that's what I want. Because my God did something crazy. The same God who did all of that clothed himself in flesh so that he could get sick and have nausea and be tired and have a cold or a man flu. Imagine God having man flu, you know, and having indigestion and, and you know, and, and just the headaches and the migraines and all of the stuff that a human being endures. And then after all of that, <coughs> excuse me, taking all of my sin and your sin and choosing to put it upon himself and then be nailed to a cross and the most horrible and in the most demeaning fashion, to hang naked in front of his own creation, a God that would choose to allow himself to get killed by his own creation, to not fire back, though all of the power of the universe is at his disposal at any beckoning moment. Because somehow in it, his love for me was greater than his desire and lust for vengeance. Somehow his grace for me was greater than his sense of justice for the things he was experiencing. And somehow his value of me was greater than any personal sense of entitlement for which he had all entitlement and yet didn't cash it in. And when I realized that that same person who took on the one thing that every great man has ever tried, when you talk about God's strength, you can pick whatever strong people you can come up with in eternity, but the one thing comes to pass and that they all have something that Jesus in common with Jesus, and that is that they all died, but then Jesus came out alive again and they didn't, which tells me that he won. And my question is, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Have you accepted that gift, that death on your behalf and that resurrection? Because if you have, well, then I want to challenge you. Let's not just be men. Let's be mighty men. Ladies, be mighty ladies. But be mighty. And mighty is going to take faith. And mighty is going to take faithfulness. And mighty is going to take fight. Because let's face it, the world out there right now isn't real interested in you following the Lord the way you should. You know, I've often said people don't have a problem with you becoming a Christian until they find out you became a real one. And that's going to take real friendship among us because let's face it, we don't stand alone. We stand with him, but we're all supposed to stand with each other. Faith, fight, faithfulness, follow through. These are things that God challenges us with. And tonight I just want to pray that for us. Then we walk out of here saying, God, put the fight in me that I should have. Not just fight for fight's sake, but the kind that will stand in my bean field. Whatever that bean field you've given me, I'm going to stand in it and I'm not backing down. And I'm going to know my sword better. And I'm not letting it go. I'm not walking out of this field, even if everybody else were to walk out of this field and drop their swords. I'm not, moving, I'm not dropping mine. I'm not taking a vote, and this is not about status quo, and this is not about being a part of the majority. This is about being right with the commander, and that's my living God. And no matter how impossible the odds are, I'm going to stand and say, Lord, I'm going to move forward. If you move forward, I'm moving forward. If that's an invincible Egyptian army, you can drown them in the sea if, they're, if, if you need to. If it's a Syrian army that just seems like I am completely outnumbered, 185,000 of them go down by a single angel in a night, I get the idea this is never an intimidation to you. It just is to me if I look wrong. So I want to pray that God would give us this kind of faith to make us not just people that are happy to not go to hell, but people that God would say, now, this is the mighty in London. This woman was full of follow-through and faithfulness. And even when they shut down one prison, she went to another because that was where she felt the Lord was calling her and she was not going to back down. And she was going to keep asking and keep asking and not just for herself, but try to get her church in there too. 
There was a girl who was convinced that once she gave her life to Christ that she was going to go hound her husband until he actually went and found out what happened to her. And she was convinced that if he could just hear the truth, he just might say yes. And when he said yes, she kept pushing him until he finally would decide to get into the water and get baptized. Because she was a woman of great faith and follow through. And that took fight. And some of you, the way you've had to stand up to your families, your friends, that's a fight. And that's a bean field you can leave. That's a field you can drop your sword in or not. And I think of the men who stood in the insurmountable odds of craziness, everything from literal lunacy and demonic weirdness to governmental I don't know, deportations and just uh, it would be hard to even write this script. We said, we're not leaving. When people said, this just seems crazy and I'm, I'm, I'm going to go find something safe and it's understandable. That's like Jesus turning to Peter and saying, Peter, we, and to his disciples, would you, are you going to go now too? Everyone else is. And I'm so thankful for you guys for the way that you show the the stalks and buds of this chapter and I can hardly wait to see what happens when this blooms blossoms and erupts in fruitfulness it's my challenge bring it on God will you pray with me God I want to thank you so much for this beautiful chapter And I want to thank you, Lord, for these guys' names, these honorable mentions. Guys like Shady and Snorter and Scabby and Gaping, Impetuous and Milk. But also that in the midst of all of this, we find towards the end an Ammonite who clearly has made his way out of the Ammonite culture to follow David. People that would have found themselves more in the family of Saul David's incumbent predecessor of the children of Benjamin, like Ittai, who interestingly enough would be called with me, who would choose to forsake, in essence, his own tribe to go and follow David initially. And I know there are people here who have done that. And I know that with each one of these individuals, there's a story to be told. But then we look beyond that to the people that have what would have some form of archetypical moment that iconizes them, like Benaiah and Abishai, to wrestle on a spectacular Egyptian or to take on 300. Yet then you show us of others, men of great friendship, who would run into the garrison of the enemy camp in a place that David once saw his childhood just to be able to bring refreshment. And the men, Shema, Shama, Eliezer, Yesheba, Shevet. God, how you would make us such men like this. And I thank you for the way that we see that here. Men that look and say, let's move forward. Let's watch the Lord lead us. And we are not going to back down on his word just because other people think we should. Maybe we'll guard whatever it is that you've put under our watch. Be it a palace or a bean field. If it's what you've given us, let us be faithful to it. So Lord, I just pray right now for us that you would, even right now, just inspire within us a heart of greatness. That mighty heart of valor that you would intend for your warriors to have. Where we don't back down on the gospel, we trust your Holy Spirit to convict, and we know that your word never returns empty. And finally, here in this room or at the sound of this voice, if there be any who have never accepted the gift of Jesus, his death for their sins, his resurrection to give them new life and to be the Lord of it. If that's you, just pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I am a sinner like men are sinners. I'm a sinner. 
And I know that makes me stand guilty before you, but you, in your infinite love for me, chose to pay for all of my guilt at the cross, dying on that cross, and then resurrecting three days later, just like you promised. So I say yes. If this is an offer you give me of complete absolution, forgiveness, purity, since you've as completely innocent paid for my guilt so that I, completely guilty, could receive your innocence, I will gladly swap. You did the hard part. And I say yes, handing you not only the filth I've made of my life, but my future as well, that you would be the Lord of my new life and recreate in me now something beautiful. Make my life a sanctuary a place where you are exalted and where the same beauty for which you created the universe and the deep seas would be the same beauty you would make now in my life as I hand it to you now. I am yours. In Jesus' name, if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. You've heard our prayers. You've heard our amens tonight, God. Now, please, lead us forward into that greatness, we pray, for you are a great and magnificent God. Amen.